listening to this week's sermon from King's Community Church. For more information about our church, including meeting time and location, visit kingscommunity.ch. Well, church, I'll tell you, as a parent, uh, one of the most humbling and, and difficult things in life is when you have an elementary school age kid who approaches you and asks, uh, can you help me with my math homework? Uh, that, that is truly a, a difficult task, especially uh, when you come to find that, that math changed. Um, what they now call common core, I would propose we call divisive core, uh, because it is not unifying families across the nation. No, seriously, though, uh, my, my daughter, when she was in elementary school, she would come to me from time to time and be like, can you help me with my math homework? And I'd look at it, and I'd be able to figure out the answer. I mean, I'm, I'm grown. I went to school. And she'd be like, no, we can't do it that way, and you have to show your work. And she'd show me a formula that it looked like Einstein came up with and said, we have to do it this way. Can you help? And I'd say, well, why don't you do it the way you think you should do it? Well, I send this work email real quick. Uh, Google image search multiplication common core. (laughs) Yeah, you're doing great, honey. Keep it up. Um, Math changed, but you know what math couldn't change? is that thing called the the order of operation. You know, as problems become more complicated and they look bigger and more challenging on a page, we can't just address them left to right, top to bottom, the way that we read, but rather we have to follow what's called the order of operation to get the right result. Otherwise, you might have all the right information, but you're going to get the wrong answer. When it comes to life, We experience problems, we experience complications, and we need to know how to get the right result. And as Christians, when we go to the Bible, we see that we have a big and complicated problem called sin. In the midst of that, sin affects every dimension of life. There is nothing in this world that sin has not affected. And all of us, every single human being on the face of this earth, is trying to navigate life in a world that's broken. Every person is attempting to do that. You consider, when we come into this world, we quickly develop values. We organize our values and call them priorities. And we figure out, how am I going to use my time? How am I going to use my resources, my money? What do relationships mean to me? Even our hobbies are attempts to make sense of a broken world and find some joy in it. The Bible also helps us understand that as, as people, we don't have the means to solve the problem of sin and all of its effects on life. That's the bad news. The good news is that God, who's filled with compassion and love, can solve the problem, and he's chosen to do that for us. God likes order. God brings order out of chaos and confusion. In fact, the first two chapters of the Bible are committed to God creating everything and then putting it in order. He's the author of life and the authority over all of living. He likes to order things, and it's not like God to leave important things disordered. Creation is ordered. God has given an order to life and living 
in spite of our rebellion and sin that prevents us from knowing and following God, God has provided an order for salvation. Through the Old Testament, there was an order of sacrifices that had to be made. Animal sacrifices would be a part of every worship gathering in order that people could worship God rightly. And that culminated with the perfect sacrifice that was ever made in Jesus Christ, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. All of the Old Testament points to him, and the New Testament goes through him in order that we can worship God. God has given an order even to salvation. And once he saved us, he hasn't just left us there. He's given an order to new life. Belief in Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of reordering our lives around Jesus. How Christians navigate the problem of sin and pain is by looking at the life of Christ and what it means for us. Paul, the apostle who wrote this letter called Colossians to this young church in a little town called Colossae, explains the order of operation for us. He explains the order to new life. And it's important that we pay attention not only to the content that he's talking about, but the order in which he delivers it. The order of operation for our lives as worshipers of of God is to keep your eyes on Jesus, kill sin, and worship God. That is the order of operation that Colossians 3 spells out for us. Keep your eyes on Jesus, kill sin, and worship God in your everyday lives. And we see this beginning in in chapter 3, verse 1, when Paul begins to explain, keep your eyes on Jesus is the first thing in our order of operation of worshiping God. Keep your eyes on Jesus. In Colossians 3, verse 1, the apostle Paul says to this young church, so if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Those first words are important. So if you have been raised with Christ... He is setting apart Christians for this conversation. If you do not call yourself a follower of Christ, if you've never said, I trust and follow Jesus, then this message doesn't apply to you. You get a free pass. What we're about to talk about is not for someone who's not a believer of Jesus. My hope is if that is you, that that you can be engaged here this morning and have a front row seat to understanding what it means to live a new life in Jesus Christ and an expectation for how Christians should live. But this message doesn't apply to you. This is if you've been raised with Christ. What does he say about keeping your eyes fixed on Christ? He says, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Paul is explaining, first and foremost, what it means to be a Christian. Paul is giving a bit of a theology lesson in these few verses. You see, for us who identify ourselves as Christ followers, we believe that the the story of God that we call the Bible is made up of the Old Testament and New Testament. And the entirety of the Old Testament is pointing to this promise of a Savior for the world, They prophecy about it. They tell everyone about it. Everyone is waiting for the Savior. In the New Testament enters Jesus. And the Christian believes about Jesus, that that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the very full presence of God himself. And in fact, Jesus lived righteously the lives that you and I were meant to live. 
In the only unjust day in the history of the world, Jesus died on a cross for the forgiveness of sinners like you and me. Three days after Jesus died, that unjust death, he rose and walked out of his grave. He revealed himself to many people. He taught them who he was, what he did. Then he ascended into heaven before them and said, I'm coming back to finish the work I started on the cross, to make all things new once and for all. And all those who trust in me will get to call their home with me in what we call heaven for eternity. That's what Christians believe. And Paul is stating here, keep your eyes fixed on things that are above. He's talking about keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus who ascended into heaven. It is important for us to focus our lives on Christ. In fact, that's essentially what he's saying is Christ is our new focal point for living. Sometimes I think God gave us the solar system in order that that we could understand our souls a little bit better. For centuries, people believed that the earth where we live is the center of all the cosmos, all of creation. Everything revolved around us through science, through the ability to see the world differently, through technology, we were eventually able to see that we're just a tiny blip in this great expanse that is the universe. And unbeknownst to us, for a long time, the earth is not the center of things. In fact, this solar system that we live in has a sun at the center of it, and depending on when you were born, eight or maybe nine planets revolve around the sun in this solar system that is in the midst of the universe. So we've had to repent of our old thoughts that that the earth was the center of things and turn toward the truth that the sun is the center of our solar system in this great expanse. What does it mean for us to have a new focal point in life on Christ? When we're born into this world, we immediately start believing, even before we have concrete memories, that we are the center of all things, right? Babies live that way. If you are a parent that has lived with a baby, it is not difficult for you to believe that babies think they are the center of all things. The problem is when they grow up to children that think they're the center of all things, right? And many of us do that. We think that we're the center of the universe. And we think everything that exists, exists to revolve around us. I mentioned values and priorities earlier. We all have a list of things that we value in life. And we rank them as priorities. And we believe those things, our time, our resources, our money, our relationships, our hobbies, even God, we believe revolves around us. The Apostle Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 3 that you have a new focal point. You have a new center of life. It doesn't revolve around you. You, in fact, revolve around God. So everything that you have, everything that you do, everything that you are, is about Christ, not about you. Another way to think about this is the idea of of running. I don't like running, but sometimes I run. When I run on a treadmill, I have to keep my eyes focused on what's in front of me. Because if I look this way or if I look that way, guess where I'm going to go? I will no longer be on the treadmill. This isn't an abstract illustration either. (laughs) When I think about Olympians running a race, every once in a while, you'll catch these people that have devoted their lives to running, get close to the finish line, and they'll quickly, just for a split second, look over their shoulder to see if anyone is behind them. And as soon as they do that, people pass them by. 
because they've lost their focus. The Apostle Paul teaches us in another one of his letters that our lives are to be run like a race that we're trying to win, which means keeping our eyes on the destination, keeping our eyes, our focal point on Christ. We are told, keep your eyes on Jesus, and secondly, kill sin. Listen to how he continues. In verse 5, Paul picks up, Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is in all and Christ is all. We see that we're told to kill sin. First, keep your eyes on Jesus. Second, kill sin. In Genesis, we talked about God establishing an order of things. In the midst of that order, he had people who are his image bearers. And he gave instructions. He gave more orders to people for life and living. People were in the midst of a garden. In that garden, God said, all these trees are good for eating. Don't touch that one. And it didn't take long. It only took until Genesis chapter 3 for things to go awry. Listen to what happened right after God established an order among his people. In Genesis chapter 3, this is how the order gets disordered. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. So you see what the serpent did? He took the truth and just twisted it a little bit to see how much she knew. She knew the truth. But then the serpent came back. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. When I read this story of what we now know as the fall, where creation was disordered in Genesis chapter 3, it reminds me that every temptation begins with the lies. God does not love you, and his words are not trustworthy. Do you hear that? Every temptation that we experience in this life begins with the lies that God does not love you and that his words are not trustworthy. The serpent said, surely it won't kill you. God said it would kill you. Surely it won't kill you. God just doesn't want you to enjoy what he enjoys. God doesn't care about your pleasure. 
God doesn't care about what you value. He just doesn't want you to be like him. And do you hear the whispers of lies perverting the truth? And then we quickly see the consequences of sin begin with shame. The first thing Adam and Eve do when they've sinned is cover themselves. They've been living in this garden naked the whole time. And suddenly they sin. They've broken their relationship with God. And they feel compelled to cover themselves because they are ashamed. The only ones looking at them are the ones that have looked at each other the whole time. Adam and Eve and God. Why do they need to hide all of a sudden? Because sin leads to shame. And then we continue to read the consequences in Genesis when God comes back into the picture and addresses Adam and Eve. And we see that their lives now have pain in life and in relationships. Things have been fractured. And eventually we see that the result of sin is death. And that story is not without God's mercy and grace. But sin will always lead to consequences. It did at the beginning, and it does throughout life. And the Apostle Paul is picking up that theme when he gives these lists of sinful behaviors in Colossians 3. We see this list is, is broken down and really into two categories, sexual immorality, sexual sins, and also sins of idolatry, which are rooted in greed. And as, as much as we like to think we're significantly smarter than people 2,000 years ago, you could boil a lot of the sins in our culture down to sexual sins and greed. People have not changed that much. In these lists, Paul includes sexual immorality, impurity, and lust, those all whisper lies to us. The lies of sexual sin sound something like this. God doesn't care about sex. God doesn't care about your sex life. That doesn't matter to God. If it feels good, it must be good, right? If God gave us the gift of sex, then it must be there to be enjoyed with no implications. Many of us believe those lies that if something feels good, we should be able to pursue that thing because surely God wants us to feel good all the time. The truth about sex is that sex is wonderful. Sex is good. And sex is also very powerful. Sex has the power to bring pleasure and to literally bring life. And sex also has the power to cause great pain. In fact, if you've ever asked anyone who's been sexually assaulted the implications on life, a lot of times it might take years of, of counseling after attempting so many coping mechanisms that don't work, and you might just have to navigate the rest of your life understanding how the implications of, of a misuse of sex affects a person's life. It's not over when the act is over. Sex is incredibly power. It was meant to be good, but it has to be used in God's order because God cares about the order of things. I will say, nothing that you've done or that's been done to you is beyond God's reach of redemption. But if you are in the midst of sexual sin, you're believing lies that something is going to satisfy you that was never created to satisfy you. Not in that way. Paul continues his list and talks about evil desires and greed, which are idolatry. I find it really interesting. Anytime you're reading the New Testament and you hear this, this author, the Apostle Paul, 
used the term evil desires, and he does a few times. The word evil really isn't written there in the original way that it was said, uh, but rather it's this idea of over-desires. Over-desires. Now, it's good that it's interpreted evil desires because we understand the word evil. But truly what's being said is over-desires. God has given us so many things in this world that he's, he's given us as gifts to be enjoyed according to his order of things. But anytime it's twisted, anytime it's perverted, anytime it's confused, anytime a desire for a good thing becomes a desire for an ultimate thing, as though it's going to give you peace and satisfaction and joy and eternal pleasure, that's when it's become an over-desire. When you desire something that you don't believe you can live without, that's how you know you've elevated something to the status of God in your life. So he's talking about evil desires. But what he's really saying is desiring things too much, desiring things more than you desire God. Evil desires and greed whisper the lie, God wants you to have everything you want. Evil desires and greed whisper the lie that that the next thing will satisfy me. The next thing will make me happy. The bigger thing, the newer thing. Evil desires and greed whisper into your ear, you deserve this. But we need to juxtapose that with truth. I'll give you truth first from the world and then from the scriptures. The truth about our over-desires and greed is poignantly put by... uh, by Jim Carrey, yeah, that guy, from the 90s, who had everything that every 90s kid thought they wanted growing up. Uh, Jim Carrey has a notable uh, track record of depression and anxiety. And he said this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Many of us believe that whisper in our ear that that next thing is going to satisfy us. Forgetting the track record of all the things that haven't satisfied us up to that point. That's that's wisdom coming from the world. The scriptures remind us that God wants us to want him more than we want anything else. See, we wanted the fruit in the garden at the beginning more than we wanted God. And that's what alienated us from God. And he's calling us, will you trust me? Will you believe that I love you? His desire for us is to desire him because he knows that's what's best for us. And the scriptures tell us in 1 John 2.17, this was the first verse I remembered as a Christian, as a new believer in my sophomore year of college. The world and its desires will pass away, but the man, the person that does the will of God will live forever. When I realized eternal life with God was better than stuff, it began to change everything for me. It was a hard process of of unwrapping my heart from the things that I desired. But more and more, I believe that eternal things are better than worldly things. Paul, the man who wrote this letter, also wrote the letter to the Philippian church. And at the end of Philippians, He writes this poignant passage describing for this church, I've lived with much and I've lived with little. I've lived with an abundance and I've lived with what seems like not enough. And I've learned to be content no matter what my circumstances are. And then he goes on to say that verse that many of us have heard before. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
believe it or not, God did not give us that verse for Super Bowl winning teams. God gave us that verse to remind us of truth, of contentment, no matter what our circumstances, that we can do all things through Christ, not through stuff that strengthens us. We need to be able to surround ourselves with truth because we hear whispers of lies all the time. Paul goes on to talk about speech towards others, anger and destructive speech. We tend to believe the lies that that prompt us to speak angrily toward people, that people deserve to know our wrath or that we're better than people. That might be angry talk. That might be gossip. But the way we speak reflects how we believe people are in a ranking order. When the truth is, God has made all human beings in his image. Do you know that we live in a society where people doubt that evangelical Christians believe God made all people in his image? Do you know that that we have black American friends that struggle to believe at times that white evangelicals really believe that people with more pigment were created in God's image? You know, I sat in the living room with a family of a special needs child who was struggling to believe their young faith. And they said, can, can you tell us with assurance that our daughter was made in the image of God? Because she's literally missing parts of her DNA that makes us human beings. Is she really a person in God's economy? Do you know that we walk by people in everyday life who doubt whether Christians believe they're made in the image of God? The truth of God's word says all human beings were created in the image of God with dignity, with inherent worth and value. When we believe the lies that we're better than others, it prohibits us from living the way God called us to live. Are you using people and things for selfish gain or for God's glory? Are you willing to put your sin to death What sets a Christian apart from others isn't how nice or kind we are. It's who we worship and reorder our lives around. God's anger towards sin is what makes the cross so powerful. God's anger toward these sinful behaviors is what makes Jesus' vulnerability on the cross that he chose as a punishment for the things that we do so powerful One of the great lies is that God is opposed to pleasure. We enable ourselves to be sinners because sometimes we just believe that that God is opposed to pleasure and we want pleasure in this life. But when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see that God was far more committed to our greatest pleasure than we could ever comprehend. But it takes a long-term perspective It's a very immature approach to life to want immediate gratification for everything we do. Remembering that we are Christians with an eternal perspective is what will allow us to have the power to put sin to death in this life, trusting that God has something better in store for us. I don't remember this story, but I've been told this story so many times it feels like it's a part of me. When I was a really young child, when we would visit my grandparents, my grandfather would always want to take us uh, to, to a really nice restaurant for dinner. And I would always want to be in the presence of my grandfather, so I'd hop into their car to drive with them. And I would look out my window on the way to the Red Bull 
the really nice restaurant, before the energy drink, I would look out my window and I'd see one of the most beautiful sights a child could ever see. Golden arches. And I would say, McDonald's trying to shed light for everyone else in the car, that, that we're passing the epic place that all people want to go, McDonald's. And I, I, I would repeat, because no one heard me, McDonald's, Pappy, McDonald's. And he'd keep driving. And I would go bonkers. And he'd eventually say, next time he comes, we're taking him to McDonald's. But for those days, everyone in the car that was mature knew that we could drive past this place that would give us fleeting sustenance because we were going to a place with such greater substance that was going to satisfy us in a way that the golden arches couldn't. The mature people in the car wanted to wait until we got to the right place to eat, to enjoy, to be satisfied. The immature people want immediate gratification. Sin promises us that it will gratify us. But in chapter 2, we just heard Paul use those words last week, that they're empty, that they're shadows, that they're inflated, but our true substance is in Christ. What sin are you walking around with that you believe is going to give you life? And when it gives you an immediate sense of gratification and goes away, just causes you to crave it more. Are you coddling those sins or are you crucifying those sins? As one pastor puts it, many of us walk through life as though we're holding a lion on a leash. And as long as we hold that lion on the leash, we think we're in control of the lion. But when that lion gets hungry, it is going to devour us. If you're walking through life thinking you can tame your sin and it will be okay, it is waiting to kill and rob and destroy you. Are you willing to crucify your sin? If you are sinning sexually, if your eyes look at things that you shouldn't look at, are you willing to put devices, to put screens, to put walls on your laptops, on your TVs? Are you willing to do that, to make, to make an extreme attempt to put sin to death? Or do you think you can tame it? If you're in a relationship that's causing you to sin sexually and you keep giving into that temptation, that whisper that I'm finally going to feel satisfied, are you willing to cut a relationship off if it means you can pursue purity instead of sexual immorality? Are you willing to seek help even if it comes with stigmas of seeing a counselor which God gets through that quickly because there are people out there that want to help you, that are professionals at helping you? Are you willing to take extreme measures to kill sin because of your trust in Jesus Christ? If you struggle with greed, are you willing to give up the car payment that's inhibiting you from giving generously, but you'll do it next time? You'll, you'll give when you have a little bit more, stopping you from living on mission because you're, you're so committed to having what's new. Are you willing to take extreme measures to combat greed over desire? to stop getting the newest thing because you don't really ever have what you over-desire. Chances are it has you. You think you have sin on the leash and it has you. People in the Old Testament 
people in the first century knew that killing sin was messy because they had this sacrificial system. Every time they got together to worship, things were put to death, literally. And then came the cross of Jesus Christ, which was brutal and treacherous and ugly. But they were able to comprehend that he was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And they said, instead of sacrificing animals for your holiness, sacrifice the sin that was killing you in the first place. But that's lost on us because we don't see that regularly. Are you willing to be brutal towards the sins that are inhibiting you from living the life that God gave you? We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to put sin to death. And new life doesn't work if you try to kill sin and then come to Jesus. God has given us a very clear order of operation. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and then kill your sin. Because it's only when you look at the cross, God's love for you in Jesus Christ, that will ever compel you to put down the things that whisper those empty promises to you. Our order of operation, keep your eyes fixed on Christ, kill sin. Thirdly, worship. In verse 12, Paul picks up, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, remember he's talking to Christians, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. In any, if anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When it comes to worshiping God, we don't have to figure it out on our own. What it means to be a Christ follower, and I prefer that language to Christian, Christ follower, because followers are trying to imitate the ones whom they're following. We have been given a picture of keeping our eyes fixed on God through Jesus Christ who did it perfectly. And in this example that Paul gives us, he lists things that will change in us. Our speech will change toward others. Instead of tearing down, we'll be people who build up and encourage one another. Our attitude will change. Instead of being self-focused, we'll be God and others-focused because God didn't just reconcile us back to him. He sent us into the world to be reconciled to one another in the perfect bond of unity that he describes. Our speech changes, our attitude changes, and our habits change too. Do you hear what he says? Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. The word of Christ, it doesn't come into you passively. When we understand the word of Christ, we begin to understand how to honor God in this life. And as we see the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus restores our relationship to God and to one another. And where sin brings shame and pain and death, the cross and resurrection bring love and peace and life, and that changes everything for us, not just our status, but the new way we live our lives. Sin kills and destroys, 
the gospel allows us to worship God again. And do you see how it culminates? This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, in verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I've been a follower of Jesus since 2002. For the last 17 years, as I've interacted with Christians, I've met so many people who treat the Christian life as though it's a needle in a haystack. And we navigate life blindly thinking, man, if if I get this mountaintop opportunity to worship God, that'll be great. And we never think about how God wants to be with us in the everyday stuff of life. We think of these awesome blockbuster moments of, man, I'd love to serve God in this way or serve God in that way. And we miss the moment-to-moment walk with God because we want to be milestone Christians instead of moment-to-moment Christians. And in the midst of all of that, Paul is telling us, whatever you do, in everything you do, have a heart of thanksgiving and gratitude in worshiping God. Don't treat Christianity like this needle in a haystack life that we're always pursuing just the right, perfect, big blockbuster moment. Allow the word of God to penetrate your everyday life in order that you can follow him and enjoy him in moment-to-moment life. When we don't do that, when we live our lives as though anything but God will satisfy us, it it leads to this this thing in life that that the old British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones calls spiritual depression. Spiritual depression is the idea of, of always chasing something that you never find, Spiritual depression is this this notion of of always consuming but never feeling satisfied. It's this idea of, of thirsting and no drink is quenching you. And he writes this on spiritual depression. The difference between listening to yourself and talking to yourself. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, The main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in the matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? The Bible teaches us that when we trust Christ, we now have an old self and a new self. When you wake up in the morning, there's a voice that's already chirping at you. It's your old self telling you how to navigate life that's talking to you. But God has given us a new self. It's the power of Christ at work in us. And he's given us his word to be able to talk back to ourselves. For me personally, the voice that's predominant in my head is very defeatist. It's very critical. Now, I'm for critical thinking, but, but it can be to my detriment at times when I think critically about myself and the things that I'm a part of. And when that critical speech whispers into my ears, you're not good enough, this didn't go well, this environment isn't the best that it could be, it starts to compound I believe the lies that my worth is rooted in what I have done or what's been done to me. 
Some people hear that voice in their head of, of a defeatist hypercritic. Other people hear an enabler. You deserve this. You've worked so hard. Man, you know what you'd really enjoy right now? The art of the matter of Christian life is to know yourself well and to know the, the word of God and be able to talk to yourself and let of, instead of allowing that natural voice to chirp at you. It, I find it fascinating that, that the devil has two descriptions that, that aren't the same. He's the deceiver and the accuser. And oftentimes the voice of that old self deceives us. You deserve this. This will feel good. This will satisfy you. Just this one next thing will make life and living so much better. And then in the other ear, he's whispering to us, you filthy wreck. You are so bad. You thought this was going to satisfy you. You deserve nothing but, but death. Who is the voice that is speaking to you? If you are a new Christian or if you've never memorized Scripture before, I'd say now might be the time. There's no better time than this to learn how to talk to yourself in order that you can believe that you need to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, kill sin, and worship God. And if you don't know where to begin, I would start with Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And ask yourself, what's true of God? What is true of sin? And what is true of me as a worshiper of him? May we be those people. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it is, it is so gracious of you that in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our believing lies, in the midst of not trusting that your word is trustworthy for living or that you love us and we've rebelled against you, it is awe-inspiring that you would still pursue us. God, thank you that while we were still sinners, you sent your son to be the sacrifice that we needed. God, thank you that you have offered us a new life. God, I pray for us as a people that we could understand your order of operation and first and foremost, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus to be courageous enough to kill sin and put the things that are trying to kill us to death and that we would learn to worship you in the everyday stuff of life. God, we confess that we miss so many moments to do that, but as we prepare ourselves to leave this place, would you remind us that every step we walk through this life is an opportunity to walk with you? And would you give us the courage we need to do that? God, you have shown yourself to be trustworthy and loving and good. We thank you for that. Will you make us people who are worshipers after your own heart? We pray in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.